This message is for all my Portsmouth, New Hampshire peeps out there. If you're in the Seacoast, New Hampshire region this fall, I wanted to urge you to check out the Portsmouth Halloween Parade. It's October 31st in downtown Portsmouth. Uh, If you've never been, it really is a sight to behold. If you haven't been in a while, which most of us have not, this is the year to get back at it. So dust off that old Halloween costume you did not get to wear last year and come on downtown. I'd also like to mention that this is a 100% community-funded event. And so during the month of October, the Portsmouth Halloween Parade organization is going to be hosting a number of fundraisers that are all super fun and Halloween-themed. So here we go. On Thursday, October 21st, we have Scarioke at the Daniel Street Tavern, also known as D Street, and that kicks off at 9 p.m. Friday, October 22nd, is movie night at Liars Bench Brewery at 8 p.m. Saturday, October 23rd, we have a pumpkin smash at the Portsmouth Farmer's Market. That's 8 to 1 and is super fun to bring your kids. Uh, On Sunday, October 24th, there's a Halloween costume paddle contest at Pierce Island. That's at 11 a.m. And Wednesday, October 27th, we have a flatbread community night at Flatbread Pizza in Portsmouth. That's from 3 to 9, and I believe that's dine-in and takeout if you're not into doing the whole dine-in thing right now. The final event for fundraising for the Portsmouth Halloween Parade will be on Thursday, October 28th. It's Undead Beat Night at Book and Bar at 7 p.m. I've been to pretty much all of these events over the years. They're super fun. And if you want more details about anything that's going on revolving Portsmouth Halloween Parade, make sure you go and check out PortsmouthHalloweenParade.org. All right. See you on Halloween. There are only three rules. Live on stage, 10 minutes long, and it must be true. Welcome to Long Story Short. Every two weeks, we bring you bare bones, live storytelling from professional writers, performers, and people with absolutely no public speaking experience at all. The stories are personal and off the cuff. It's live storytelling at its best. about you guys but here in New England we are neck deep in fall. We've got foliage and crisp summer days and pumpkins and of course Halloween. Where I live up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Halloween is a big deal 
in large part because we have this signature fall event here in town, the Portsmouth Halloween Parade. If you haven't heard about this event, you have to look it up. It's an impressive show of creativity and creepiness. I like it because anyone can join the parade, which is probably why it draws hundreds of participants and about 10 times that number of spectators. There's music and dancing and tons of scary costumes, a lot of uh, original creative costume. There's floats and marching bands, and it all goes right through the heart of downtown Portsmouth. You got to check it out on YouTube to see what I mean. So the stories that were recorded in this show are from a series of fundraising events, long story short, hosted called Dark Tales. The stories from these shows are part true story, but mostly fiction, and showcases horror writers reading from their latest works. The first story is from Kristen Ringman, a fantastic horror and fantasy writer who shares a story from her book, I Stole You, Stories from the Fae, which was a Lambda literary finalist in LGBTQ SFF horror which was a Lambda literary finalist in LGBTQ science fiction, fantasy, and horror. This story is a mesmerizing tale about a woodland supernatural... This story is a mesmerizing tale about a woodland supernatural creature longing for human connection and the consequences that come from trying to seek it. Here is Kristen Ringman. everyone can everybody hear me okay okay um so i've traveled to thailand a lot in the last few years and i've really fallen in love with their ghost stories and so i like but for me i like to try to imagine what the ghosts might feel like in stories like that so this one is called nang tani i stole you from the temple. A crescent moon hung low in the sky. The monks laid out little candles all along the walkways so that visitors to the temple would not trip and fall in the dark. You walked by the golden Buddhas in your best clothes before kneeling at the back and praying with your head down low. You stood and walked slowly down the meditation path behind the temple, past the small man-made ponds, past the white stupa, past the homes of the monks, until you reached my tree. I am Ningtani, and my home is this wild banana tree you've come to see. I've lived here for so long, I don't remember if I've ever had another life But sometimes I wish I did. Sometimes I wish I could be human like you, be able to go to the markets or ride a bus somewhere or go to the city. When you reached my tree, I stepped out from the wide green leaves in my green top and skirt wrapped around my green tinted skin. 
I had a red flower in my long hair. I watched you light incense as an offering to me at the base of my tree. You tied a beautiful orange silk ribbon around my tree to add the ye to the yellow and pink ribbons that were already there. I feel gratitude for those things. You were not someone I wanted to harm. As you stepped back and turned away from my trunk and turned to leave, I became desperate. Couldn't you stay a little longer? Couldn't you sit down and be with me for just a little while? I moved in front of you to stop you from leaving, but you didn't see me. You walked through me like a ghost. I floated back to my tree, wrapped my arms around it, and sobbed. For days, I felt lost to the world. I couldn't connect with anyone who wanted to see me, who came to see me. People came and left, and my life was an empty stretch of space between one visitor and another. A gap of time where I sat and watched the sky change from day to night to day. Watched the monks attend the gardens between my tree and their temple. Watched the birds land on the white stupa and fly off again. How I wished I could be a bird instead of a tree spirit. Or a human, I especially wish to be able to dance on a stage with makeup and costumes and, and be beautiful like the girls that I would watch. And I wanted to make everyone smile. I wanted to be free. But people came and went as predictably as the days and nights. Weeks passed, and finally we returned on the night of a half moon. I hadn't singled you out for anything in particular. There was nothing unusual or remarkable about your dark hair and eyes, your small frame, the simple clothes you chose to cover it. In a crowd of local people from the villagers, you wouldn't have stood out at all. You'd blend in with everyone. The reason I felt kindred to you was because you had an invisible disability. I didn't know it myself until you came a few times. A monk came up behind you and startled you. Another person tried to speak to you, and it was clear that you didn't hear or understand their words. When I saw that, I wondered if you felt as alone as I did with my tree. I wondered if there was a way for us both to be together. Every time you came to me, I stepped out from my tree. I approached you, but you looked straight through me. You didn't see anything besides my tree with the silk ribbons tied around its trunk. I was frantic. I don't remember ever crying so much in my entire existence. Discovering you, desiring you, made me lonelier. It didn't make sense. One night, the moon was so full it shone like a white sun in the dark sky. The stars faded around it. Even the candles around the temple, usually bright and fiery, seemed muted in the wake of such a moon. It gave me hope. You approached my tree again with an offering of incense and small handful of sweets. This time, when I stepped in front of you, your eyes widened, and you stepped back 
You made a sign with your hands again and again. You were signing my name. You saw me. You knew me. I was overjoyed. But when I went to embrace you, you fell backwards to the ground. I stopped. I, I wasn't sure how to sign. So I tried to gesture that I only wished you well. I only wanted to sit with you. I sat down between you and my tree and I waited. Your ragged breathing slowed down. You sat cross-legged and you stared at me, but I couldn't read your face. I waited again, wishing for some kind of friendship or something between us. I only wanted to connect with someone, you see? But soon you stood up and you bowed to me, and you were going to go again. But I couldn't let you leave this time. I couldn't bear the light of the full moon illuminating my solitude. I didn't choose my life. I was not like one of the monks of the temple. I couldn't stay with my tree forever if this was what forever was going to be. I grabbed you from behind. I wanted to be kind. I only wanted to hug you. But you fought against me. Your arms flayed around. And I heard the sound of you trying to scream, that it was as if your scream was caught in your throat and you didn't know how to release it properly. I took your face in my hands and pressed my lips against yours. I kissed you sweetly, but you didn't stop struggling. So I had to hold you tighter and tighter. The loving embrace I had in my mind dissolved as quickly as your body weakened. I knew I might be hurting you. I knew I was clutching for something that wasn't mine, something that you didn't want to give. And to be honest, I hated myself for it. I hated that I needed you so badly, I squeezed the life out of you. I didn't even realize I killed you until you went slack in my arms. Your head fell back. Your eyes stared blankly at the moon behind my shoulder. A psalm caught in my throat like your screams. I felt such a deep sorrow I couldn't cry anymore. I sank to my knees and I held you while the moon crossed the sky and sat behind the palm trees on the other side of the temple. I lay beside you in the dark until another trapped spirit appeared out of the woods. She was the floating head of a woman with her organs dangling down from her neck in a thick, wet tangle. Her name was Krazu, and I knew she was hungry from the way that she sniffed at your body, even though you weren't bleeding. She usually followed the scent of blood and killed chickens or wild, wounded animals, but maybe she didn't find enough of them to eat. I usually felt bad for her, she was one of the spirits I used to remind myself that my fate was not that bad. At least I wasn't a severed head with my organs hanging down from my neck. I floated and I couldn't walk, but at least I still had feet. I resembled a human girl. She looked at me with an air of challenge. She knew I wasn't a killer like her, but because of that, she knew that you were more rightly hers than mine. I wanted to fight for you, I did, but
but I was tired, and my loneliness rose up around me like a cage. I slipped back to the arms of my tree while I heard her ripping your flesh and slurping up your blood. I closed my eyes and held my face against the limb. When she was finished, she sighed with pleasure and floated away. I drifted out from my tray as the sun rose. I collected your bones and your blood-stained clothes. Behind my tray and the brush, I built a small altar for you. I lit incense beside it, and I gave you half of my sweets. Thank you. <laughs> Our next story we have for you is from Long Story Short Advisory Board member Mark Michael Adams, who just kills it with this nearly true story about exploring an abandoned prison at the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. For those folks who have not been to Portsmouth or Kittery, Maine, uh, this prison is a looming castle over the Piscataqua River, uh, which occupies the border between New Hampshire and Maine. This prison is made famous for being one of the most fearsome military brigs in all of the armed services. Known as the Alcatraz of the East, legend has it that if anyone escaped, the Marine guarding that prisoner would have to serve the remainder of his sentence. The prison closed in 1974 and has since been empty, but there's been plenty of local conjecture as to what secrets might be inside and what people may be hiding there. Here, Mark talks, Mark talks about a night he and his friends dared to enter this secure facility and the supernatural occurrences they witnessed there. Here is Mark Michael Adams. It was a Saturday night in the summer of 1987, the summer before my senior year of high school. Josh and Toby had just arrived at my house for our usual board game night. Toby was in an awful mood. His parents were getting divorced. There had been massive layoffs at the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. Toby's dad worked as a security guard, and with the military cutbacks, he was one of the first to go. After over 20 years of sobriety, he had started drinking again. From the arguments between his mom and dad and his drunk, dad's drunken rants as he sat alone in the garage polishing off bottles of cheap bourbon, Toby pieced together that it wasn't being laid off that caused his father to start drinking again. It seems that a few days before the layoffs had started, in the early mornings, in the early hours of the morning, a Coast Guard cutter had pulled into the shipyard with a small commercial fishing boat in tow the kind that used dragnets to catch bottom feeders. The boat had been abandoned and the crew lost at sea, but on board was something that they had hauled up from the ocean floor. Base security decided to store it wherever it was in the basement, whatever it was in the basement of the old naval prison. Toby's dad never saw what it was, but he was there to lock it up. Toby just stole his dad's keys. He was determined to find out what it was that was locked up in there. What was it that destroyed his family? Toby told us that his father kept yelling, just put it in the storage room down the back stairs beyond the kitchen. And now, if we were true friends, 
we were going to go with Toby and find out what was down there. Me and the guys spent most of our time playing Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games and watching zombie apocalypse, end-of-the-world movies. So we'd actually looked over maps of the whole seacoast and laid out plans just in case the Armageddon came down on us before we left for college. We figured out that if we launched Josh's dad's fishing boat from Whipple Road Bridge, went around Clark's Island, we could land at Sullivan Point, cut through the chain link fence, and get to the naval prison. Tonight, we were actually going to try and pull off this insane plan. Armed with flashlights, pocket knives, and a wire cutter, we went to Josh's house and hitched up his dad's fishing boat to Josh's truck, which we did all the time, so no one questioned us. We drove out to Whipple Road and put the boat in. Fate seemed to be on our side that night because a thick fog had quickly rolled up the river. With the cuts to security and the weather, we were all unreasonably confident in ourselves. Within 10 minutes, we landed at Sullivan Point, secured the boat line to a rock, and scaled the embankment. Maintenance of the fence had been lax, so we cut through with ease, a quick sprint across the paved yard, and we were at the front door of the Port Portsmouth Naval Shipyard Prisons. Everything was going as smooth as a heist in a British spy movie until Toby pulled out the keys. His hands were shaking and he stood there fumbling trying to figure out which key was for the front door. Frustrated, I grabbed him from his hands, hissed, you're gonna get us caught! And he pushed and pushed him out of the way. There were almost two dozen keys on the ring, but the second one I tried worked. I removed the padlock and pulled open the door just enough to slip in. Toby and Josh followed and I closed the door behind us. Turning our flashlights and scanning the room, we saw that the building had been gutted and abandoned so completely that it felt more like a rotting corpse than a man-made structure. We argued for a moment as to which direction to go in to find the kitchen. We finally agreed to start at the bottom of the main housing block, figuring that it would limit the amount of distance that inmates would have to travel on a regular basis. And moving through multiple sets of double doors, our hunch paid off, and we found the mess hall. Crossing the huge room, the silence was shattering, shattered by Josh blurting out, What did you say? Toby and I spun to face him. Nobody said anything, Josh, replied Toby. We stood there staring at each other for a moment. None of us wanted to ask or say anything. Come on, let's move, I said, and turned to continue to the kitchen. I had spent every summer of high school working at a different restaurant. So even though all the equipment had been removed, I could tell by the layout that we were in the right place. Our pace was slowed as we reached the back of the kitchen and found another set of double doors. Pushing them open, there before us was a stairwell going down. Josh says, I've got a D20. Should I roll for perception? We all laughed out loud, but quickly <coughs> caught ourselves, realizing that we were about to do what would either be the coolest or the dumbest thing that we have ever done. I was glad for the comic relief because it broke the tension and I couldn't admit that I was so scared that I wanted to puke. A deep inhale to steady ourselves and we began to descend the stairs. One flight down, it emptied into a long corridor lined with doors on both sides. Slowly, we walked down the center of the corridor. Upon reaching the third door on our left, Toby said, this is the one. Josh replied, how do you know? I shine my flashlight upon the door because the chains and the lock are new, I said. Approaching the door, I pulled out Toby's dad's keys and began to systematically go through each of the interlocking loops 
trying to find the right key. What did you say, stammered Toby? Nothing. Nobody said anything, Toby, Josh replied in a huff. Both of you shut up, I blurted out. I got the right key. The lock popped open, and I removed the chains from around the door handles. I looked at Josh on my left and nodded. He nodded back. I looked at Toby on my right and nodded. He nodded back. I pulled open the doors, both of them at the same time as Josh and Toby shined their flashlights into the room. It was damp and empty, except for a ball on the floor in the center of the room. We entered the room. It wasn't a ball, but a sphere. I couldn't tell if it was stone or metal or glass or what it was made of. And it wasn't smooth. It had carvings on it, symbols and letters and shapes that I had never seen before. We stood around it, staring at it, when all of a sudden light from within the sphere began to flicker. An electric kind of spark, but a sickly gray-green color like a neon sign in a honky-tonk with 30 years of cigarette smoke and dust covering it. The flickering began to pulsate, and it, began to, and it became an orb of light floating within the sphere. Then another appeared, and then another. I stood there staring at it, wondering what will happen next. More and more lights appeared, flickering on and off, swimming in the depths of the sphere. I was transfixed, staring at it, the only thought, what happens next? Running in my mind, a ringing in my ears, seemed to blot out the rest of reality. Suddenly a movement from the corner of my eye breaks my unwillful concentration. Josh is swatting at the air around him as if to shoo away bugs that are not there. He's just standing there, his arms flailing away, trying to defend himself from a phantom swarm. I turn to Toby. He's not looking at the sphere. He's looking up, but his eyes have rolled back in his head, and he's chanting some kind of incoherent gibberish. I can't understand a damn word. Something in the back of my mind pulls me back, pulls back my gaze toward the sphere on the floor. The floating eyes have stopped, and I see what they are. Eyes. They are glowing eyes, and they are staring at us. Abject horror washes over me and penetrates into that primal part of my brain that decides fight or flight, and I scream, RUN! at the top of my lungs. I grab Toby and Josh and hurl them towards the door. Somehow I manage to keep the presence of mind to stop and close the doors, chain and lock them as we found them. The three of us ran as if our lives depended on it, because to us, at that moment, it did. We didn't stop to think about how to get out we just ran as fast as we could, and our instincts brought us back the way we came. Bursting out of the front doors, we were blinded by white light that stopped us in its track, stopped us in our tracks. Toby, what the fuck are you doing here? Shielding our eyes from the light, we realized that we've been found out by the night shift security guard. Mr. Wilson, one of Toby's dad's co-workers, was standing there with his flashlight. Sorry, Mr. Wilson, uh. This was my idea, was all that Toby could say. How did you get in there? How did you get here, he demanded. I held out the keys. Josh admitted to using his dad's boat. Mr. Wilson exhaled heavily. Did you see anything in there? No, sir, all three of us said in unison. 
Mr. Wilson's expression was sad. I know that your dad is going through some hard times, Toby, and I'm just going to write this off as a bunch of teenagers acting out. I'm not going to call the authorities or your parents. I just want you three to go home and forget about this whole night. Your families don't need the stress, and I don't want the paperwork. Get your boat, get out of here. Yes, sir, all three of us said in unison. We left the island and got home safe, never uttering a word to each other the entire time. We spoke of that night and our friendship. We never spoke of that night and our friendship waned within a few weeks. And by the time our senior year started, we had stopped hanging out altogether. I don't know anything about those guys and what they did with their lives. I have, however, managed to always be somewhat close to someone who works on the shipyard. Recently, the Navy base has been trying to privatize contractors to come in and renovate the old prison. Word is that every time they tour that old building, whenever they get to the back stairs beyond the kitchen, the potential contractor turns around quickly, leaves the building only saying, nope, deal's off. And to this day, no one has ever gone down the back stairs beyond the kitchen. For me, I've stayed in this area my whole life, working restaurants and theaters. Something keeps me here. I just want to see what happens next. Thank you. That's our show. Be sure to check out the website for news and updates we have planned for this fall. And of course, have a great Halloween. Long Story Short is produced and hosted by Beth LaMontagne Hall. Original music by Timothy Fife, whose recordings are available on SoundCloud. A special thanks to the Long Story Short advisory board members, Tristan Law, Amy Jane Larkin, Martin Murray, Debbie Kane, and Mark Michael Adams for their support and all they do to keep this series going. The stories recorded in front of a live audience are part of Long Story Short's ongoing storytelling series, held quarterly in the 3S Art Space Theater in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Thank you to the 3S team for their production assistance, marketing support, and for making these recordings sound so good. 3S Art Space is a contemporary arts organization, venue, and gallery space dedicated to presenting bold and emerging art and entertainment. To learn more about the organization and upcoming shows, go to 3SArts.org. To learn more about Long Story Short, how to get tickets to a live performance, or to sign up to be one of the storytellers, go to longstoryshortpod.com. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at longstoryshort3s.